Here we are again with another episode of Research Conversations, Part 2 of David J. with host V. Vale, brought to you by Research Publications and Research Books. Thank you very much. I was big into the beats, that whole, whole scene. My dad was a beat, one of the only Asian beats. Who was your dad? Um, well, he, he actually made his mark by being an actor in a few Hollywood movies, and there's no roles for Asian males no. back in the 50s, 60s. But What was his name? You don't know him. His name was Conrad Yama, but he got to play Chairman Mao opposite Gregory Peck in a movie called The Chairman. Oh. And his <laughs> big acting was playing table tennis. I don't know. Anyway... <laughs> But he was into the beat scene. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. definitely, because he was he was good friends with my uncle, who was also into the beat scene and not famous. But my uncle had met Ferlinghetti in Paris and studied painting with him on the GI Bill, where if you had served in the army, you could live anywhere in the world and get get a nice check coming enough to live on. Mm -hmm. And so he took a painting class in Paris. Married a German girl, the same class as Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who later founded yes. City Lights. So I have these kind of weird roots going back in kind of what you might call counterculture through the ages. Right. Because I do feel all the countercultures are connected. They just don't look alike. Yep. But they have the same rebellion against the status quo of the minute or time. Yes. Of the era. Sure. And so... I was really ashamed that I completely missed the very beginning of what later became given the term goth. And and the only way I, I found out really late because I had an intern, this kind of beautiful girl interned in 86, which is late after punk, hmm. and she came wearing all black, you know, black lipstick, black dyed black hair. She's a white girl. And then she's the one who told me all about goth. Mm. And, oh, yeah, we like to go to cemeteries and take pictures of beautiful gravestones. And, and we like to read Edgar Allan Poe. And mm -hmm. then we like to... And we listen to Bauhaus. Yeah. And I said, oh, my God, when I heard Bela Lugosi's Dead and played it so many times, I felt this is like some revolution or some breakthrough or something compared to everything else that we were playing up to then. Yeah. And, but I didn't know that it would become... And then I thought, oh, God, I saw the Dam's first concert half a block away in, in March or April 77, and Dave Vanian had on, you know, black Dracula makeup or whatever you call it. Well, there were some bands that came out of the punk scene that crossed over into, into the goth scene like Susie and the Banshees is a classic example. The Cure as well. I mean, The Cure were associated more with punk when they started. Definitely. Um, and, uh, and yeah, The Damned. Uh, and then But we had, a, we had a strange, like our relationship with, with God, we've always felt that was very limiting. You know, we were always like very yeah. more expansive thinking and because um, we were influenced by a lot of different types of music, you know, apart from the dark that we've spoken about. Funk, disco oh. to a degree, you know, yeah. it was kind of like perverse, perverse, perverse disco, like perverting disco or, or using it ironically. Um, <laughs> but we like those rhythms and the, the bass, a lot of my bass lines are like derived from funk and, uh, 
and disco, like walking bass lines, you know. So there was all that, and uh, there was rock and roll in there as well. And, well, sure. Um, there was something that was unclassifiable. I mean, essentially, it was that's what we were going for, was to make music that was not part of any kind of genre or scene. It yeah. was just, just our own thing that was original and uh, that we hadn't heard before and that we wanted to hear ourselves and it didn't exist, so we had to make it ourselves, you know. A lot of people forget that, at least I remember in the early days of what I experienced as punk, of of not trying to sound like anyone else. Consciously, sure. you wanted to be a bit unique. Yeah, That was absolutely. a goal. Definitely. Yeah, individuality was key. You know? Yeah. So that's why it became very ironic when later on in the 80s in England, suddenly there became this sort of uniformal, you know, oh. punk look, you know, with the, with the, mo the mo Mohican and, the, you know, the studied leather jackets, you know, and they all had the same things painted on the leather jackets and they looked very uniform. Whereas when punks first started, there were lots of individuals there. Yeah. I mean, they were kind of grouped under that umbrella and you could see that they were part of that scene. But within that, they had an individual statement that they were making. Yeah, I agree. And that uh, that's... To a lot of younger people, I know that's been lost. And, and it was very anti-conformism, too. Yeah. You know, and, and there was also a lot of humor in it that people yes. miss. Like, it was sarcastic, you know, yes. very kind of um, sardonic humor. It was cheeky, but it, it was there. <laughs> I agree. I, I mean, I guess I gave it the term black humor or dark humor, from which I got got from reading the Surrealists, yeah, because they put out a book called Anthology of Black Humor. Mm -hmm. Finally, got translated in English. Yeah, so. that's another big influence on 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 me certainly and on Bauhaus is the Surrealists that Great. all came into play. I'm looking over your, your 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 shoulder here. There's Antonin Otto selected writings, a book I have got. Great book by Susan Sontag. We had actually had a track with Antonin Otto. Yeah, he was. Somebody who's very influential on, on us, certainly as far as like playing live and the whole theatre of cruelty thing. And it, you know, it's a transcending a, uh, a performance, transcending its theatricality and becoming ritualistic and yeah. primal and transgressive. And also channeling and, uh, yeah, you're trying to channel through something that transcends you, kind of. Yes. Something bigger than you, you know? Yes. Yeah, and that's something, you know, it's a conscious goal. It's not always you get it every time you perform, I suppose, but, you know, you, you have the concept, conceptual framing. Yeah, and, and the desire. And, yeah, so that it might happen mm -hmm. or could happen. Yeah, well, with Bauhaus, it often did happen. <laughs> and it was sometimes it was pretty frightening because it was so on the edge. And we did enter into this kind of uh, Dionysian kind of... <laughs> you know, wild uh, dimension. Yeah. That could yeah. be, it, and it, sometimes it became violent. Or at least theatrically violent. No, sometimes literally oh, violent. Oh, wow. Uh-oh, that is scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and audiences w were quite thrown, you know, when that was going on, understandably. Some of them loved it. Some of them were really freaked out by it because they didn't know what the hell was going on. And so, really, we didn't know what was going on, but we knew when we were in that zone. And you, you're talking with angels and devils, you know, simultaneously. That's a nice phrase. Wow. 
it's poetic. I agree with you that the goth does seem to have a not the complete 360 emotional spectrum in it, mood spectrum and mm, all that. Mm, yeah. And that is unnecessarily limiting. Or you can try it for a while. Yeah. But I think eventually... Yeah, I, I still wear all black, but it's because I'm lazy. I I, I don't want to wake up in the morning and ask what shall I wear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything well, goes. The socks are black. Yeah, well, me too. You know, no. but it's not really about that. It's not really no. about wearing black. I'm talking like a, really musically, and the limitations you know are imposed by a pigeonholing, you know, a genre. Because about the you talk about spectrum and Bauhaus really had a broad spectrum of moods and styles, you know? Well, sure, anything that comes from inside out hmm. onto, onto material existence via instrumentation, your voice, whatever. Yeah, you should be free anything yeah. that comes out. Express <clears throat> it and record it and perform it, whatever. The important thing is that it comes from within, I think. Wow, well, do you keep journals and all that? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Great. Oh, yeah, which on and off, not, yeah, not all yeah. the time, you know, but I've always kept my, my diaries and there's been notes in the diaries. I mean, the, all of which were invaluable when I wrote my book about Bauhaus, my time with Bauhaus, uh, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, Bauhaus, Black Magic and Benediction. And so they were like stepping stones, you know, I'd be able to go back and just look at a certain date and there's a note there and it would jog my memory. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, when we were in Berlin and we were backstage we were playing suicide and I got my hand caught in the door and that's I remember yeah and then other memories start to to are triggered by that little dark entry yeah dark oh. entries um yeah that's right you're in you're in England based so you got to do all this traveling over different countries yeah we went to Europe pretty early on um there was interest in Germany in particular and uh, so we would just we would just self-finance ourselves and just get in an old beat-up you know transit van and and go across and on the ferry and and we just play these places and we we wouldn't have any anywhere to stay we'd just like wing it you know and we'd just stay with the fans sleeping on floors all that you know we'd sleep in a van sometimes and just drive these long what for us were long distances on the autobahn and play these post-punk punk gigs. Some of them were pretty well organized in Europe because they were, some of them were government sponsors, which we thought was quite funny. And they had these, these big buildings that were um, funded by the government. And what we thought was funny was that they were occupied by anarchists, you know, <laughs> who were sort of railing against the government. It's like, well, no, your government ain't too bad, mate, because they're funding you to a degree, you know, and making this happen. So that was a bit ironic but we like playing those places anyway there was one great place in brussels uh called plan k oh you know yeah. you must know that yeah um, that was that yeah. was really great burroughs appeared there on the same bill as joint division just before we played there because they'd been there like the week before so they would put on things like that uh, very adventurous and they'd put on like performance art and avant-garde theater stuff installations so we'd get invited to do things like that, which we loved doing. We'd always, we always, and we got in with this uh, a great promoter, two guys in London called Final Solution, 
probably familiar with them, who'd put on the most interesting gigs, not the regular gigs. You know, they'd always, they'd always find some venue that was not on the circuit, some disused old Masonic hall, or you know, that I think they did one, one gig in the old the the caves where the uh, Hellfire Club would hold their mm. orgies, you know, yeah. stuff like that. And I Throbbing Gristle did a lot of gigs with them, the pop group. They were, they were great. That was great as well, just playing in a, a place that's not like a rock and roll club. Yeah. So all right from the off, you're not sort of lulled into this complacency of the familiar. You're put into somewhere that's out of context. It's not the usual venue that would host a, a, a band, a rock and roll band. So all, already you just you it's a little bit off. So we always relish that and try to set up those kind of gigs when we could. That's so contemporary. I mean, it. Well, it's like it goes back to like the surrealist, surrealist holding a, uh, an art exhibition in the in the public lavatories, you know, in the gents down in the in, the, you know, that it's the same that's thing. Right. So you're thrown off. You think you're not just going. You're not in this kind of zombie, semi-zombie state of going into an art gallery. It's like what the fuck? <laughs> going in. There's latrines and there's a painting, you know. So, like context, juxtaposition, real surrealism. You know, it shakes you up. That's really good. Yeah. So you, then you perceive with a fresh perspective. Well, yeah, so that's right. I'm glad you you tied in the concept of house shows, which you are working one or play. Or well, work doing, and play. I'm doing more say. house shows than anything else, and and that that's yeah, another example. You know, sometimes I play literally in somebody's living room. It's a little suburban house, you know, with a standing lamp and a and a sofa and a TV set in the corner, and I just set up by the TV set and I do a gig. Great. And uh, they invite their friends, and it's uh, it's very familial, you know, and yeah. just connected in that way. And I hear the stories from these people about how they first discovered music, like you told me about how you discovered Bella Lugosi's Dead, things like that, how it affected, affected their lives, and they're very genuine, and it makes me want to, like, give more, you know? Instead, yeah. I... I think everybody gets cynical when you've been doing the, the circuit of the clubs, you know, the smelly old clubs and and often with seedy people running them. Not always, some wonderful exceptions to that, but quite often um, just waiting to be paid at the end and then not being paid because there's some bullshit going on and they didn't do this or do that, they didn't take from this guy or whatever. None of that nonsense. All these gigs are paid for in, in advance, so that's out of the way. And um, and then I just turn up and do the show, you know. And it's they're spontaneous as well, because I do have a set list, but quite often somebody will, like, not necessarily shout out a request, but they'll ask a question, and, it, and so it's very kind of free-rolling, and I'll tell a story, and that'll prompt the next song, and I'll pull that one out of the hat, you know. So it's very alive. Spontaneous. Very spontaneous, yeah. Yeah, spontaneity is life. Yeah. You're right. A lot of, I guess, if you are a band playing a, a bunch of clubs, I guess you do work up a set that seems to work. I.e., people cheer at the end, but then you don't. You're reluctant to vary that. Yeah. Well, the worst thing is when you f- you feel like you're going through the motions. Ooh. You know that has happened to us a few times, and we have always nipped it in the bud, and and really, to in an extreme manner, we have. I mean, I'm thinking of what immediately comes to mind was when we were on tour in 89, we had a hit record, number two here, So Alive. And we started to get an influx of 
very young girls, like 14, 15 year old girls who only knew us through that song. They didn't know anything about Bauhaus or any of our weird albums or B-sides or anything. You know? So to, to shake them up, you know, and because we were in this long, doing this long tour and just playing the same set, um, we decided to um, just abandon that set and just go on and make a, like a wall of noise, you know, for as long as we could, just, just noise to freak out these 15 year olds and and sure enough, they left in droves. And then once they'd gone, like the hardcore would remain. Then we'd okay, we'll play the songs that we really like to the hardcore who really like those songs as well. So it was sort of like a, a filtering system. <laughs> but we started to go a bit crazy, you know, up until we needed to do that for our own sanity as well. Yeah. But it was, in another way, it was commercial suicide and it was self-destructive. And we've always had that. We've always had that that tendency or risk-taking, shall we call it. Extreme risk taking. <laughs> yeah. Another time we were doing a tour of Europe and we decided to just swap instruments. You know, Peter played the drums, didn't sing anything. <laughs> I played the, the guitar, you know, as best as I could. You know. uh, I think Kevin, Daniel played the bass. And then, and, nothing, and just improvised, you know. We had colours. We had to say, okay, we'll play a blue, we'll play the blue track, whatever that's going to be. But they just think blue, you know. And then rad. Because you have to, you have to just shake it up occasionally. That's brilliant. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. That's li that's living. That's really living when you do that. Well, it keeps it alive. Otherwise, you're not. You're a robot. You become that's a robot. Right. You become like of. a bit zombified. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to fall into that. Well, it's because it. Is easy. You're getting paid or it's something. Yeah. yeah, but it's not. There's no. <laughs> there's no spirit and there's no spark and there's no soul. You know, and music is t too important to piss away like that. <laughs> that that's I, I I always feel that one of the reasons we live is actually to continuously be exploring the idea of freedom, you know, and in in what we create or call our art or I don't even like to use words like art. It's all art to me, but you know Well exploring in general. Yeah. To be curious I think is a is a very wonderful thing you know keeps you alive and keeps you young you know keeps curiosity you, yeah and keeps from getting bored because you'll you will do something different mm -hmm. out of curiosity alone so i want to say that david j is starting an american tour and look for him in your neck of the woods or you're in your living room or oh yes your living room you might even be privileged to <laughs> to talk to him like i'm talking to him now you never know well when i do the living room shows i always like afterwards i'll i'll sit down at a table and and sign things and talk to the the people there yeah great yeah yeah and it's great because it's not just me telling stories they've got their own stories you know and right. so it's conversational wow so I, I think you roundabout way you're telling me that you haven't had a a day job since very young. No, I've been able to get away with it for a very long time, as Joe Orton used to say. Oh, you didn't know him personally. I didn't know, but but, but I, no. I love him. I love his humor. I yeah, just, I love his his I place know. and his I've read, persona. You know, I'm not sure he's known in America, but I knew from City Lights, of course. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if he took off in this country. Huh. Well, he's I've seen his productions here, but much more well known in London, obviously yeah. in London, in England and Europe to a lesser degree. Talk about black humor. 
Yeah. He was the master. <laughs> Wicked. Wicked boy. <laughs> That's for sure. So, now I find it curious that I was just in London. Of course, I've never lived there. And London is kind of wows us a little. And um, and I know you lived, you just told me you lived north of England. And England has a certain um, appeal to a lot of us Americans. I'm not just... <laughs> <laughs> and yet you, for whatever reasons, are now living in Carlsbad, California. Where else have you lived in America? I lived on the East Coast for a, a little while, but again, that was a stepping stone to get over here. Yeah, England's changed quite a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things about England that I love, but what I really loved about America and what we all really liked was a kind of generosity of spirit that was abroad, and I still find that to this day, despite, you know, these beleaguered times. Uh, there's still that, that generosity of spirit and openness, and you don't get that in England. It's, you, well, you have to really work for it, you know, <laughs> and there's something to be said for that, but it's too much the other way, and there's a kind of cynicism in England that we found very debilitating and, mm. and just negative, you know. We'd had enough of it, and when we used to come over here and tour, there was just this positivism and open-mindedness and um, a generosity of spirit is the best way I can describe it, and that's, that's a great thing. And also, I mean, we were always we were influenced by American music going way back as a, the music that preceded punk was, it was American. Things like the Stooges, right. Velvet Underground, you know, um, MC5, Jonathan Richmond, Modern Lovers. All that music was essential to what became punk, New York Dolls. But aside from that, we, we all loved uh, old rock and roll, you know. Sun Records, rock and roll, and mm. the rockabilly stuff. And yeah. That was all part of it as well. And then like Motown, you know, uh, that kind of old, old style R&B, soul music, the blues, jazz as well. So much great music came out of America. Yeah, I saw James Brown once. That was an amazing show. I saw him once. Oh, you did? Yeah, Where? Daniel. It was a great gig, and it was... It wasn't like a public gig. It was the Bartender's Ball in New York City. And I went with Daniel. We were recording an album. It was 1998. It was near the end of his time. But um, it was still great. And he, so he was headlining. Isaac Hayes came on, joined him for Soul Man and a couple more. There was uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash was DJing. And it was just all bartenders. It was an open bar. So you can imagine how riotous it was. You know? It was, you know, bacchanalian. Uh, I was fascinated by his by his hair when he would turn his back because we were right down the front, you know. Just that it was almost it had been sort of die cast in plastic. <laughs> I remember when he went to jail when the judge asked him, he said, have you, "Mr. James, do you have anything to say?" He said, "Don't let them touch my hair." So he used to have a hairdresser come in every week and set his hair, and apparently, and he had the you know they let they let the hair alone. <laughs> And he also said, he said an interesting thing, though, James Brown. When he was in jail, he said he w would hear his own tracks time and time again sampled, you know, because the music they played was hip-hop, rap. And he'd like, God damn it, <laughs> that's me. And I'm not getting a nickel, you know. And he was right. 
Uh, yeah, I saw Grandmaster Flash once in 1982, my first trip to New York. Yeah. I didn't have any money ever to travel because I never really worked. But, yeah, and then a Michael Jackson impersonator came on. I thought it was Michael Jackson, but someone said, no, that's an impersonator. But I couldn't tell. <laughs> and that, I guess he wasn't super famous by then in 82. Well, so you, you, you like American music? Have, so you've seen your share of American performers, oh, even yeah. though you're from England. Yeah, yeah. We used to see the American artists that we liked when they played in England as well. You know? Oh, right, of course. Yeah, saw Lou Reed a few times. Yeah, the Velvet Underground were really key for Bauhaus, especially for me and Danny, Daniel Ash. And really, they were kind of like the proto-punk band, you know, but with literary leaning lyrics, you know. But the subject matter was pretty punk rock. The street, you know. The street. And astute observations of that, you know. And I just love the way he would write in that journalistic way in a way it's like a journalist meets a poet but he had that sort of cold unblinking look you know that yeah. that vision to just look at something however hardcore and fucked up you know he could just look at it and take it on board and recount lay it out in poetic terms but also in in that kind of cold clean observational yeah, concision. Yes. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was a great, uh, very dynamic, you know, that kind of uh, lyric, lyric writing with that kind of sound. And again, they used cheap instruments, which uh, prefigured punk, you know. And that was, very, see, that was very liberating to see those bands when we were poor, when we were, didn't yeah. have money, and they were playing instruments. And it wasn't like, in the past it would have been, okay, yeah, well, these guys are playing those instruments, but once they've saved up enough money, they're going to get like real nice instruments, and then th they'll be better. It was like, no, this sounds great, you know, that that like really nasty sounding cheap guitar. That sounds great, and it's perfect to put across the sentiments of these songs, you know. Even if they you're given the opportunity, you probably wouldn't want the expensive guitar because it didn't have that that quality, you know. It was so essential to the, the vibe of it all. It, it really is a different, complexly different aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I that's what I liked about punk. It, I, I put, I made up the phrase, it lowered the bar to the floor <laughs> so that anyone could write a song or form a band. And in whatever. that was very liberating. Yeah, I think so. And it was sort of like anybody who really had that compelling desire to form a band they had one at least one good song in them yeah you know and there was some, there's sort of some great one-off singles out there I, I think that's the best format still the the single that you could that you could pay money for I just don't like everything being free online it seems like as soon as you make a record the next day my my teenage daughter can find it free online I don't like that yeah and also the sound of it, you know, is just oh, yeah. so it's much it's, it's so more thin. Compressed. Yeah. yeah, they don't realize that. No, well, yeah, some of them are learning. <laughs> That's why vinyl is making a That's right. comeback. That's right. It's got to be. That's right. People are young. People are learning. Younger people are learning. Yeah, it's well, actually, my son is in his twenties. You know, and he oh, loves, you have a son. He, he, How yeah, cool! He, he loves vinyl. 
and his friends are really into vinyl, and they're discovering like real old records, you know, as well as the new stuff that's coming out. And he turns me on to as much as I turn him on to, you know. So that's great. Oh wow, you're lucky you had a son. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, he's really into music. He's got very good taste, I must say, Joe. Oh, I always say that you learn from your kids. Absolutely. You know. Well, you've had a full life. Then if you've had a son, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's been a... Over 20 years. Really the most enriching experience I can think of. You know? It yeah. intensifies your, your experience of everything, which is a wonderful thing. It's a terrible thing as well. Because it, ma- it terrible? because it makes you feel really deeply because you you project, you know. Prior to having uh, a son, if I say if I saw a movie where there's a young kid in there who was killed, say, you know, I'd be affected by it, but not as deeply as I am now because you project, oh, if that was my son, you know. And, uh, and then just the beauty, you know, of seeing youth exploring, as we've been talking about, like exploring... Uh, art and to see your own offspring doing that you know it's just overwhelmingly beautiful so everything one's experience of life deepens I remember J.G. Ballard said that it was only when I became a grandparent that I overcome came my fear of death Hmm. and I thought wow I guess he emotionally it's not just logical and verbal emotionally he realized you know i have to leave to make some room for you know the next because he had he and he had like three 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 kids that he brought up and yeah yeah, on his own on his own Mm. boy that's heavy and still wrote those incredible books i love love his books you know good going back to when i was like Early early twenties. Who you discover him? I guess he's better known in England than in this country. I did my best to promote him for America. He was a big part of the the underground um, sensibility. You know, everybody. My friends were really into J.G. Ballard. You know, the same guys that were into like listening to Can's records, yeah. say, or um, the Velvet Underground. You know, would read J.G. Ballard as well as Burroughs and um, Huxley and. Etc. You know. Well, yeah, I, I I joked that I was his biggest fan because I used my own money to publish four books in America on J. G. Ballard. Really? And I always still run into people who've never heard of him because he didn't come here and you know be on Oprah or something. Which were the books? Oh, I, well, the first one was called just J. G. Ballard. It was a comprehensive introduction with a lot of materials he gave me, like artwork collages he made and little pieces he wrote, both fiction and non-fiction. And, um, and we added, me and my friends tried to add Ballardian visuals. And that was the first one. And the second one was the, this book that sold terribly for him, but I loved it, called Atrocity Exhibition. Yeah. And then we were able to <coughs> add really great visuals for that, I thought. And then I did... Next one was J.G. Ballard quotes, just quotations, and then J.G. Ballard conversations. Yes. So, so it's four. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I thought you meant like separate to your research books that you'd put out. Like. Well, they are. Everything I do is a research book, but right. it doesn't. It, yeah. They're all. There's some of them are different, more different than others. Some yeah. of them are more like magazine format. Yes. But yeah, I. It's funny. I. 
only a few weeks ago, we did, we were lucky enough to meet up with one of Ballard's daughters. Hmm. We went to her house, and she fed us the best crackers I've ever had in my life. Where was this? They're made, she lives in London, and, oh, okay. and she the crackers were imported from Germany. Like I can't remember, doctor or somebody. i got to go look at my slide. You mean cheese a, crackers? Just, just crackers. Delicious crackers okay. from Germany. <laughs> Take my word for it. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know where you can get them here. I, I think I found a Canadian cracker that's close. You're reminding me of something now. When uh, we used to visit Germany, when I was talking about those old days when we used to just go over there, and the hospitality was fantastic. And people would take us into their houses. Yeah. And there'd be like this smorgasbord of cheeses and meats and cold cuts and and wines and great beer, you know. And we were overwhelmed by the, by that hospitality, you know. So I always had like a great affection for Germany whenever I go back there now, you know. And it's still like that. Yeah, I would agree with that. We yeah. were in Berlin too and Frankfurt a few weeks ago and. Yes, there. Everyone is very nice to you in detail. Yeah. You Berlin's know. a great place. It is. Yeah, and now twice as big. I was there before the wall came down, mm. and now it really seems huge. Yeah, because it's absorbed the east. Yeah, yeah. East Berlin. I went to the. I know what you're talking about. I went to the east when it was still the east. You know. Yeah, and me it was too. a very strange experience. It was like going back in time. I agree. Everything was strangely clean. And plain, and and bland, yeah, yeah, and and uptight. Well, I remember it seemed like every car was painted gray in the same exact car on the street, mm. and they're little yeah. cars compared to America. Mm. Yes. And then I went to one store. This is in the dead of winter, Christmas. That's the only time I could ever make a vacation was Christmas to New Year week. Yeah. And and the store all all they had for sale was like green apples, potatoes, um, maybe cabbage. Uh, it seemed like that's about it. Oh, cabbage! That's when you were living it up when you had cabbage in East yeah, Berlin. Yeah, yeah, maybe not even cabbage. You're right. Bleak. <laughs> Very bleak. Yeah. And then you go across over the the wall and completely different. You know, like an explosion of color. You know? Oh yeah. Ah, the art scene there, and it's still really vibrant. Yeah. It's still pretty cheap. It's like the ba last bastion of Bohemia, I think, Berlin. Yeah. Someone told us that no, the new Berlin is Warsaw, and I don't know what to say to that. Well, that, somebody's always going to say that, you know. <laughs> In other words, it's cheaper rent, I guess. Yeah. But it wouldn't be the same people. Yeah. I, I know I, that when we were in London, people were complaining about how high the rents have gotten. Oh, it's it's astronomical. Well, I was very and sad and last time I went back there. I went to Soho oh, around yeah. there and how that's changed. I mean, that Ooh. used to be such a fertile breeding ground for um, artistic revolution and sin. <laughs> and they like, cleaned it up. And sort of swept away all, all that character, you know. It's similar to New York, yeah, and to San Francisco. And it's happening in San Francisco. Well, here there's still a few strip clubs. I know it's still One block. this little area. Yeah, it's still got. Thank a vibe. goodness. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I blame the Chinatown proximity for it because that's Chinatown still has its own kind of weird integrity. Yeah, you know? well, don't blame them, thank them. No, I'm glad. <laughs> Are you kidding? I love being here. Yeah, no, no. I know what you're saying. <laughs> In this exact yeah. few blocks, few square blocks. Yeah, I remember the, the first time I came here. It was a long, long time ago, and I made a beeline for City Lights, of course, because I, I was crazy about the beat writers and and the, and like the French um, poets, uh, symbolist yeah. poets, and so it's like this is like the place, you know. Yeah, and it was not disappointing. And then, of course, Vesuvio's over the road. Right next door, and there's specks across the way is nice too. Yes, yes, yeah. I went there still last there. time I was here. It's a great old place. Yeah, still there. Yeah, there's actually two really cheap restaurants just up on Broadway, just up from you know this Broadway in Columbus. Yes, really great ones. I recommend them. The Noodle Bar on one side and the Micon on the other. They're both family run and really inexpensive but delicious. Okay, and they're open. The Micons usually open till at least two or three a.m., right. which is nice. Noodle Bar, not the Micon. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, you you get around. How many times have you been to San Francisco? A zillion. God, I don't know. <laughs> I've been coming here since 1981, so many times. That sounds right. I got fired from Rough Trade in 81, because if I had, were still there, then we would have met then. Why'd you get fired, if you don't well, mind me asking? Oh, I don't, I'm, I don't mind saying it was, it was, um, well, I was a, I actually got hired by one of the founders, a very tall person named Jeff Travis. I always yeah, I, I know. Oh, you I know him? Well, yeah, I haven't seen of. him in years. Me but yeah, so I, I met him, yeah. Yeah, well, we had an all-night conversation, and that's why he hired me. I mean, we just had fun talking. Yeah. Like we're talking now. Yes. And, and he says, I'm going to hire you, and, I, and you can do a publication, and Rough Trade will pay for it. And I said, what? You know, and, and I did three issues of what's called a research tabloid. Yes. But, in the meantime, it was putatively a collective that was being formed here. And whenever there's a collective, there's always an alpha male that takes over, yeah. which is what happened. And he kicked me out because uh, the magazine is not is losing us lots of money. Uh, <laughs> right. One of those. Well, Jeff Travis was instrumental in us signing to 4AD, actually. Really? Yeah, because we, we sent a demo to Rough Trade. Yeah. Um, we actually went down and met Jeff. Good. And he said, he thought it was an interest in music, but it wasn't didn't quite fit into the uh, the flavor of Rough Trade, you know. Yeah. But he said, I think I know these guys that started his new label, and they might really like this. So he passed it on to Ivo. Mm. So that's how that came about. Wow. Yeah. Good for him. Hmm. No, I have a great deal of liking for him, even though we had that one night, all night <clears throat> conversation, <clears throat> and then I think. He left town. Yeah, <laughs> hired me. I rented the place, and right. etc. Yeah, but but then after I was fired by just sheer luck, I managed to start a typesetting business. Typography was paid very well in those days before computers, and so I was able to publish for years. Just I didn't care whether anything sold or not. I right. the money came from the typesetting business. Yeah. I well, I, I always loved your research books. I would always pick them up whenever I saw them in London, you know. 
and you could tell this they were being put together by somebody who really cared about was curious about and just loved the subject matter you know and that really does it comes across and they're they're so well researched <laughs> and put together and interesting they're really interesting Thank you. Yeah. Well, we we hate typos. I, I, must, I hate typos as well. I like, hate. Th- oh, it's so it's so easy so for these little these yeah. little fish. These little fish. They they swim through the net. Doesn't matter how fine you stitch that net. There's always a few little. My nose look gets like that. Yeah. So you so you you spot them after the job's done. It's well, like, that's horrible. I I, I I I always same with my book. I, well, I, I used to say I never look at my books because with, if I pick one up and look at it within five minutes, I will find a typo. I know. Oh. Yeah, I, I I get obsessive about it. Good. Um, so I've been I've been like updating. Oh. As we go along, and of course, the, it's a beautiful thing to have the Kindle version because the Kindle oh. is pretty much pristine now, as far as I can gather. <laughs> So free of errors. Yes, and it might go to a thirty. It looks like it is going to go to a third edition. So when that comes out, it'll be the same as the Kindle, and I should be so happy. <laughs> ah, wow! <laughs> You're so modern. Great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I always felt that everyone ought to write a book once, just for the experience of it, for the discipline. I don't know. I don't like these words like discipline, but I will. You know, yeah, it is a discipline. Certainly, I mean, writing that book for me was very different to anything I've ever done before, and I realized, sort of instinctively, I realized that I have to be um, more formal in a way about how I was writing it. So I, I chose to start at a certain hour at noon and I'd write for two hours in in an office. You know, well, in like a it was kind of an office like room, a back room. And at the same place, let's sit at that table. And even if I had a flow going, I'd stop after two hours, have a break, and then come back for one another hour in the afternoon. You know, that's remarkably like Jay-Z Ballard's routine. Except him it was nine in the morning. And, and, and at one, he'd take a long walk along right. the Thames River for lunch and all that. I, yeah, I, I didn't know that, but I, I gather that his, his regimen was differ from mine in that he would have the drink before he started writing I'd have my drink when I finished that's not true not true no so that's when apocryphal I, when I saw him because I thought he was, he was the, watching start with a gin and tonic no he didn't <laughs> okay uh, no he but boy I, I taped him several days in a row like all day and when it got to be close from five to six he kept I noticed he kept looking at the clock Oh yeah, and right at six. <laughs> Same thing happened when I visited William Burroughs. Oh really? He was, yeah, he started to get itchy looking at his his watch, approaching four o'clock. You know, and he waited until that that was on the dot, and then it was drinky time. <laughs> Wait, where did you meet Burroughs? I didn't know that. That's cool. in Lawrence, Kansas. Oh, I went there too. I spent yeah. ten, two weeks with him almost. Oh really? I spent yeah. a, a day. Well, that's cool. Yeah, he took me out, showed me uh, his shooting range. Well, the shooting range with the paintings, the shotgun paintings, you know. And um, and then we went on a snake hunt Ooh. in his backyard, you know. Yeah, I know that. We both backyard. had these big tumblers of vodka and coke, and he had his yeah. snake stick, which was a, a long stick with a, a V on the end, and yeah. he would pin the, the snake down with his stick. He'd catch them because they were poisonous, and they would kill his cats, and he had all those cats. 
and then put them in these cages and then study them for a little bit, admire them, and then release them into the woods. So I, I said, so you never kill, you never kill a snake, snake? He goes, no, I never kill a snake. Beautiful creature. So that was fun. <laughs> kind oh. of surreal. I was looking at the back of his head. You know, he's had his flat jacket on and his tumbler and the snake stick, and it was like a sunny day. Yeah, and all these very good-looking, corn-fed young boys working on the land with their shirts off. <laughs> well, I, I, I went there, I guess, I think it was August for... It, it was two weekends and a weekend between because his inseparable assistant helper, whatever you want to categorize him as... James. James, yeah, he wanted to take his first vacation ever. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll come and look after William. I jumped at the chance. Mm-hmm. And so I was there in, I think it was August 88, for like two weekends around a week. Yeah, it was similar to, I was there in 89. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, I thought it would be a little later because he didn't do the snake hunting then that I knew of at least. Mm. Uh, but he did take me out on a shooting trip it wasn't on his property it was a, we had to drive somewhere not too far and then we we had a shotgun and pistols <clears> and we just basically aimed at i don't know tin cans or something yeah <laughs> yeah because he had a fetish about the guns i think that was all because of the, the incident with the shooting you know i think it, you know it's like a it's a syndrome when somebody goes through trauma like that they fetishize the um the object that was involved in in the incident yeah yeah fetishize the object i mean that's what fetishism is you uh, you trans something like that a red high-heeled shoe becomes an erotic object Mm. to Mm. you or something Whereas, really, it should be the, the woman's foot that was in the red shoe. Well, I, I, I know that Burroughs, you know, for Burroughs, the gun was erotic. Yeah, yeah. I suppose so. Well, yeah, he he showed me, you know, I think I took a picture of his bed. Yeah. Uh, took liberties a little bit. It's just this narrow little bed, very Spartan. And I, and I said, where do you keep your gun? And he says... Oh, I, I sleep with it under the covers oh, yeah. by my hand where you can get at it. Never put it under your pillow. You can't reach it. But but when I was there, he had left his front door open, and he w- woke up at like 5 or 6 in the morning when it was still dark, and there was this enormous American Indian standing there, apparently drunk. And like, how did you get in? Oh, the door was open. And he sort of talked him, escorted him out, but there was no gun involved. Huh. <laughs> he was just drunk or something, or slightly, the American Indian was just... Yeah. But I thought that was... Sounds, a, sounds like Chief and uh, One Flew Over the Cooper's Nest. Oh, you're right. <laughs> I thought I thought that was a little strange that that happened. But, you know, Burroughs was cool. You know, no violence, for example. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. We, we've both been to his house, <laughs> and we know those grounds, yeah. sort of. Yeah, I, I got a souvenir. <laughs> I asked him to autograph. He gave me, he had all these 
he used spray cans of paint among among real paint, but there was a spray can that had a whole bunch of different colors on it, and, and I asked him if he'd autograph it for me. All right. <laughs> so I still have that. Well, he gave me a kabuki mask that he'd spray painted. Really? Red and green, which he also signed for me, although you can't see it anymore because it he did it with a biro. So You know, I kept mine in total yeah. darkness. I hid mine away because I said, this is going to fade. And I will never be able to prove it's signed by Burroughs. Good for you. Wow, we had that same experience. That's, you know, they say friends are parallel lives. That's weird. Huh. Yeah, I have visited J.G. Ballard several times. Uh, you know, it's hard to get the money to go there, but for me at least, but I've succeeded. Yeah, he. It's funny because he's actually kind of antisocial. Like, I was proud that he wouldn't go to. He wouldn't just socialize. No, I mean, he re as far as I gather, he rarely ref left that house, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like they wanted to give him various awards over mm. the years, and he refused to go and claim them. <laughs> yeah, it's like like um, my friend Alan Moore. Oh, you know him. Alan I've known Moore? Alan, Alan for years. Well, I was amazed when you said you knew Alan Moore, and I said, tell me everything you can. Yeah, well, if I was to do that, I'd have to move in with you for a month, so I can't I do love that. it. <laughs> That's great. I've known Alan since 1978. Um, Don't tell me he was in the punk scene, kind of. He was aware, very aware of it, but, I mean, um, he had this, it was... I was going to say a band, but it was a bit more than a band. It was more like a, an arts collective wow. called the Emperors of Ice Cream. And um, I discovered these co-conspirators um, in Northampton. They were all in Northampton. And uh, poets and avant-garde musicians but who came out of punk but were more leaning towards, like, avant-garde music. And... Uh, you mean they're before punk? Well, yeah, they were making music before punk, but they were influenced by punk. Everybody in that collective was influenced by punk. It had an effect, you know, on, on the uh, just on the sensibility of what they were producing, definitely. So it was sort of a post-punk, but avant-garde. It was influenced by the Beats as well. It was very much like the Beat Generation. I went the first time I met them, I was taken down into this dank cellar in the back streets of Northampton and they're all down there. They had a, one curious thing I noticed was they had all these posters. All the posters were pinned up to the wall with the images facing the wall so you couldn't see what the posters were. <laughs> and uh, Alex Green was the sax player who's the first one I met who played on some of my records later on. And he was down there blowing away like freeform kind of jazz. There was a guy um, scratching away on a, on a cheap guitar and he had a, an Allen key and it was like sliding that up and down the guitar Ooh. and then there's this guy Pickle who's a really eccentric genius playing very kind of Bertolt Brecht kind of off-kilter cabaret type staccato music and then Allen on the keyboard yeah mean? on the keyboard and then Alan reciting his, his poems uh, over the top of all this you know cacophony and I thought it was bloody marvellous <laughs> so then we would just join forces and uh, out of that came a, a one-off project called the Sinister Ducks 
Correct. We just did one record. And actually, well, the first thing I heard Alan recite was on the B-side that was called Old Gangsters Never Die, and a uh, spoken word piece. And then we just stayed in touch, and I'd just go round for an audience with Alan Moore, which is quite an experience. And, uh, I mean, a singular and extraordinary mind, that man. And he always lived in this same... For years, he's lived in the same little terrace house, back street house in Northampton. Uh, and he would never go. He doesn't go to these events like J.G. Ballard. And, or he wouldn't travel, you know. And I asked him about that one time. He said, well, said, uh, the thing is, Dave, I can, be, I can travel anywhere I want. And it's not even limited to geography. It's not even limited to time. I can go to San Francisco in 1957 and meet Jack Kerouac at City Lights. Or I can go to Victoria, England and look for Jack the Ripper by staying in this room, you know. So he has that mind and he can do that and he does do that and then he, he's a shaman and he brings back the, you know, the jewels of that experience in his work. And that is what his work is. You know? yeah. And then we can, vicariously, we can travel to those places. Yeah, he's, and he has, a, he has a wonderful sense of humour, Alan, as well. I do miss... That's one of the main... Maybe the main thing I miss about England is visiting Alan Moore. <laughs> so next time I'm out there, hopefully later this year, I shall be a tapping on his door. Sea View. It's called Sea View. <laughs> Ironically, because Northampton is the furthest place from the sea in England. <laughs> so there's this little kitsch um, plaque on the door, sea view. Oh, humor is so important. It's essential. It's essential. And the darker the times, the more essential it is. I feel these are dark times. Oh, these are very dark times. Oh, I'm glad you so agree. The, so the, the, the humor has to be very prevalent. I agree. I think these are... And it has to be black. Yes, absolutely. Know? So I think that's a, that's a good note to end on. Yes, I agree. And <laughs> yes... And buy David's book is another good note to end on. Yes, please. Available through Jawbone Press. <laughs> Very good publishing house. Yeah. In they, England. Done to some, picked you, yeah. Well, I'm not saying that, but they, they put out. That was top of my list of like the publishers that I wanted to go with. Good. So I was really pleased when they, you know, made me an offer. It's Who Killed Mr. Moonlight? Bauhaus, Black Magic and Benediction by David J. Haskins, which is my full real name. Well, when you DJ, you are known as David J. Mm. Mm -hmm. That has your approval. Yeah, it's only for the writing. It just felt right to have my name on the book and it's something my dad would have liked. Not yeah. that he was around when it was published. There you go. Okay, great. Thank you, V. Vale, and thank you, David J. Research Conversations, brought to you by Research Books. Thanks for listening.